Hello, and welcome to Off Our Next, a podcast about women in the law. I'm your host, Jennifer L. Brinkley, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies at the University of West Florida. Off Our Next is derived from a quote from the abolitionist Sarah Grimke. She was born in 1792 and worked in slavery and fought for women's rights. Her famous quote, which inspired this podcast, was, I ask no favors for my sex. I surrender not our claim to equality. All I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks. My guest today is Cynthia Godso, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. Professor Godso teaches courses in family law, criminal law, children in the law, professional responsibility, and public interest lawyering. Her scholarship centers on the regulation of intimate behavior and gender roles through family and criminal law, encompassing topics including the path to marriage equality, the designation of victims and offenders and intimate violence, and the criminalization of non-conforming girls. Her recent work has appeared in the Yale Law Journal Forum, Tulane Law Review, and California Law Review Circuit, among others. Today, we are discussing her chapter titled Parental Love and Purposeful Violence in the Politization of Safety, Critical Perspectives on Domestic Violence Responses. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to say I really enjoyed this chapter. Um, I'm teaching family law this summer, and I'm going to assign it to my family law students. Um, oh, what inspired? Yeah, it was it was really really um, informative and uh, very thorough. I think it's great. Um, what inspired you to write on this specific topic, parental love and purposeful violence? Well, so in terms of um, you know, I also teach family law and children in the law, and um, I think a lot about. Uh, these issues of, and I also teach criminal law, of um, interpersonal harm or interfamilial harm and what's the best way to handle them. Um, And so uh, it wasn't, most of the book um, is about intimate partner violence between adults. um, And I think mine was the only chapter I'm dealing with um, adult on children violence, which is obviously a big issue. Um, So that was something I wanted to explore more and I, it's also, though, complicated to me because I don't think that it is the same as uh, violence between like strangers or people who aren't related to each other. I think it's more complicated and needs to be dealt with differently. But, um, you know, so that was something I wanted to think about more and work through. Yeah, I think it really fills a void in uh, how we think about these concepts. You know, child abuse is such a complicated issue. I- I'm both a former prosecutor and a former family law, solo practitioner. And I really think that it is one of the most complicated, difficult practice areas because it's got so many intersections and emotional issues intertwined within it. So what do you think that people outside of the family law profession and maybe outside the criminal law profession as well, what do you think they don't understand about the complexities of child abuse and neglect? Uh, so that's a great question. I mean, I think part of it is people don't really understand, um, you know, what it is even. So in terms of child abuse neglect, people think of child abuse and they think almost all of it is abuse, like sexual or physical abuse, when really most people involved in the child welfare system or sometimes even prosecuted as neglect, which has a, lo- a lot of overlap with poverty. So it's a lot of parents who are unable or families who are just unable to support, um, you know, proper child care. So they leave kids unsupervised or proper housing and so on. When we're talking about, so in this chapter, I'm talking about corporal punishment, which is usually uh, uh, considered uh, neglect, like excessive corporal punishment, but sometimes can be physical abuse. But I think people also don't realize 
the extent to which it's not spanking. So a lot of times people talk about it in terms of spanking, which is allowed, um, you know, and which is fairly common, I mean, to different degrees throughout the country. Um, but really, um, the U.S. law in every state allows parents to do a lot more than spanking. And so I think people don't really understand that either. You know, there's cases that I discuss in here of parents, you know, burning their kids or hitting them with a paddle or choking them, which is all considered corporal punishment. Um, so I think people don't really understand what we're talking about in the first place and then don't necessarily understand the harms, including many parents. Right. So I don't think everyone's doing this or most of them are even doing it with some bad intention. It's just that they've been taught a certain way from their own background or parents, and no one is telling them that really, actually, this is not effective discipline. And it can be, you know, also harmful. So in addition, at best, it's ineffective. And at worst, you know, in, in more extreme cases, it can be harmful. Yeah. So I remember when I, uh, I was practicing in Kentucky and working with the Cabinet for Health and Family Services in child abuse and neglect cases, kind of the standard that they had um, was parents can use physical discipline, but they can't leave marks. Um, Do you find that to be consistent among jurisdictions or what are some examples of permissible parental discipline? Where, Where is that line drawn? Yeah. I mean, I think the line's really fuzzy. So in New York, when I practice representing, um, kids and young people in the system, uh, many whose parents have been accused of abuse and neglect um, or who themselves have been accused um, of crimes. Um, Yeah, it's the same rule, like not leaving a mark, but you could hit them with the belt, but not with the buckle and on certain parts of the body. And I think part of the problem is we get into all this like super fine parsing of things um, that is very um, hard to figure out. Uh, And it doesn't mean even if there's no mark, that doesn't mean it wasn't harmful. Like some of the emotional abuse in here, like parents um, saying sort of horrible things to their kids and then posting videos on the internet that, you know, some, there's some medical evidence that's actually more harmful than physical abuse. So I think, you know, um, I think trying to draw a line is just really almost impossible. And also then it gets applied in really unfair ways, just like in the broader criminal legal system so that we see um, people of color much disproportionately prosecuted um, or, you know, involved in the child welfare system for the same kind of things that other families would do, but their privacy is not invaded as much. So that's why I kind of say, I think we should just get rid of this at all, get rid of the parental discipline privilege for saying that parents can physically discipline their kids. Now, that doesn't mean I think they should, you know, all be prosecuted. I think it's more of a, like, this is a rule and we're just going to enforce it through, like, public education, which is a lot of what a lot of European countries have done, like, with real success. And they've seen, like, really dramatic decreases in the number of parents who do physically punish their kids, um, you know, over, like, a decade. But still, it really has worked um, to send that message that no amount of it is, is helpful. Yeah, I loved how you brought that up in the in the chapter. You said that Sweden was the first country to ban corporal punishment in the home in 1979. And I was pretty shocked by that uh, being so long ago. And then in January 2017, you said that France brought the total to 52 worldwide. Um, so what was the impetus for these countries to make this type of change? Do you foresee the United States ever following suit? <laughs> That's a great, another great question. I mean, I think it's probably even higher now. It's pretty much all of our peer countries have banned it. And again, most of them, you know, I don't think are prosecuting for parents who do do it, which I definitely would not endorse. You know, I don't think that's what we should be doing in intervening in the family, but it does send like a message. I think it's just so clear. And I guess Sweden, you know, is usually a front leader in all things family or criminal or maybe just law related social policies. Yeah. But 
The medical evidence is super clear. And actually the American, all the American medical associations, pediatric associations that are, have all come out, including some quite recently because there has been, you know, pushback from certain uh, groups, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute, but they've all come out saying absolutely clearly, like every bit of research shows that, you know, in some cases it can be harmful, especially repeat, um, but that in no cases is it helpful. It's just not effective discipline. Um, and most of the parents who are doing it are, are doing it out of frustration or anger. Um, and they should, you know, be basically learning more effective ways uh, to discipline. Um, and so I think that's probably what drove these countries is just, this is just not, um, you know, helping anybody, um, super clear. Um, and I do think the, the question of whether the U S I mean, we're even seeing now, obviously with a lot of the, you know, action around, um, stay at home, like a very different dynamic than in a lot of other countries, you know, it's kind of very American to be like, I have the right to, you know, beat my kid. Like people will say that. So I know Massachusetts, maybe other states as well, but Massachusetts definitely some, tried to enact legislation, you know, to exclude, you know, and again, no one's saying that they're going to go after uh, and prosecute like people who spank their toddler, you know, but, but there was huge pushback. Then there's this notion that, you know, the kids, they're my kids and I have the freedom to decide what I want to do with them, um, which again is a very, um, I think it can be really problematic because it's not looking at the community interest in kids. And also it's not even helping parents. Like I said, like it's not that they're doing something that is helping them actually more effectively discipline or raise their kids. Um, and it does play out in bad ways in the home even. So kids with disabilities tend to get um, more frequently uh, beaten kids who don't, who defy like gender norms uh, in their homes. So you know, we can see that it's got all these other dynamics going on that parents should get be getting some kind of help with um, in dealing with that would not be physical. But I don't know that politically that's like likely to happen given um, the sort of strong doubling down on it's my right to do whatever I want with my property, um, which, you know, a lot of uh, people sort of consider American parental rights to be so strong that they do treat children virtually like property. Um, and so I'm not sure that it will happen uh, anytime soon anyway. Well, let's, let's kind of go back in time a little bit. You start the chapter off with this quote from William Blackstone um, that was made hundreds of years ago. Um, who said battery is, in some cases, justifiable or lawful, as where one who hath authority, a parent or master, gives moderate correction to his child for the benefit of his education. Um, and I know, you know, if you look at the history of domestic violence, interpartner violence, and, and you just mentioned, you know, uh, humans being treated as property and how um, you know, women, uh, men were, husbands were allowed to uh, use basically physical violence in order to kind of keep their wives in line. Um, so this really is still kind of that mental state that we have. William Blackstone really isn't that far away from where we are currently in terms of how parents see using discipline to maybe correct their children's behavior. Yeah, I think that's really true. Although it's the only category that's remained, right? So with partners, like, even though we know there is still a lot of intimate partner violence or family violence, there's a pretty clear acceptance societally that it is wrong um, and harmful. Um, and obviously same with, you know, master and slave. Um, but I do think children are sort of like last holdout. And I get that they are different. Like, you know, children are not, 
Um, they're not independent always, although, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who support corporal punishment, sort of parents' rights groups and so on, um, will bring up the example of a toddler, like running in the street and you have to physically grab them. And again, that's not what we're talking about here. Like the cases I'm talking about here are older kids, sometimes even teenagers who are being, um, you know, really severely beaten for other kinds of infractions, like, you know, texting boys or things. Um, so it's really not, um, it's not taking into account the unique nature of children when you have like a 15 year old, that's what looks starts to look a lot more like intimate partner violence or something, except that it's, it's permissible. And one other thing that I think is disturbing about the corporal punishment um, law, legal landscape is that a huge swath of adults um, are included in this, including like basically anyone who looks after the child or cohabitates with them at any time. So not just parents like legal parents who are obligated, you know, um, who have responsibility towards their kids, but like a very frequent perpetrator of corporal punishment is like the stepfather, like not the father, not someone who's actually adopted the child or who's, you know, supporting the child financially, but who is the mother's partner. And this can also raise some really bad dynamics when you have like teenage girls who are pretty big, pretty big recipient of, of um, corporal punishment, I think because they're frustrating maybe, you know, to, to their parents. But I mean, the idea that you're having like a 15 year old, be uh, spanked on her naked, you know, bottom by her mother's boyfriend is really, uh, is really disturbing that that's something sure. that we're condoning and treating in the same way as like a toddler who runs into the street and needs to be immediately, you know, physically restrained. So again, I think part of it is like I was saying earlier that people don't really realize what we're talking about here. Um, and this notion that this outdated concept of Blackstone, you know, that predated slavery, um, is being used, you know, even cited by courts and really old cases cited by courts to justify behavior in today's world when we know so much more about child development uh, and, and we know so much more about other kinds of disciplinary forms. It just doesn't, you know, make sense that this anachronistic law is still around when all the others, all its peers are, have been abolished. Um, and I will say that there's also you know, disproportionality, there are more Black families, like there's much higher rates of usage among Black families, um, which people interpret in different ways. And I certainly am not in a position to be able to say why any individual family does it. Like maybe they feel like some people have positive, they feel like they have to toughen up their kids for like a racist world, which, you know, certainly see that it is. But there are also other authors, including one I cite, who um, is an African-American historian or historian of African-American culture who, you know, posits that some of this is also sort of um, remnants of slavery left over um, in these communities that it's more um, physical punishment is more um, is more commonly used um, and a lack of other resources. So, um, yeah, I think it has a lot of remnants of bad parts of our history that we shouldn't be continuing and should instead be supporting families in other ways to discipline their kids. Yeah, you talk about us knowing so much more in terms of research and scientific evidence. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the, not just the physical harms, but the psychological and emotional harms um, that may befall children um, whose parents have used corporal punishment? Yeah, definitely. And I think I like how you distinguish between those because actually the physical, except for like really extreme cases, which you know usually wouldn't be permitted if there was really lasting injury, um, it's actually much more the emotional and psychological harms, but they, you know, include from repeated corporal punishment, right? Not from just one incident, but from repeated, which many parents do use over and over. 
Um, they have like statistically higher rates of, um, you know, um, emotional and cognitive issues. And again, depending on the age or emotional and cognitive um, delays, depending on the age that it starts. Um, one really disturbing um, finding to me, and again, of all the research, including recent research, is that um, those children who are recipients are more likely to, in the future, either uh, as adults, either be abusers or victims of intimate partner violence, like significantly more likely, more likely to abuse substances. So all bad outcomes. Um, and the irony, I mean, the sad irony being that, you know, I do really think most parents doing this are are just trying to find a way to, you know, help or control their child. They just don't have other options or don't have other information to really understand that this is actually harming their child in the long run. And, and in family law, I kind of think of it as like this guiding star principle, right? This idea that we use the standard of best interest of the child in making a lot of our decisions, like cust- custody time and time sharing. And um, But how does that standard of best interest of the child intersect with this idea of permissible parental discipline? Yeah, I think what's really interesting is that we have a presumption. And again, it's usually for more middle class families, um, definitely, because again, families both in the child welfare system and the criminal system are much more likely to be accused, including of corporal punishment, excessive corporal punishment, um, or more poor or, um, you know, otherwise marginalized families like people of color. But generally, in terms of middle class uh, families, there's an assumption that the parents act in the best interest of the child. Um, And, you know, I think generally this is true. But what is kind of, again, interesting about the U.S., like very strong notion of parental rights, which can be problematic or is problematic, I think, uh, for many children and for society more broadly, is that we enable that assumption even when there's very clear information that that's not true. So, right. So another example is like the anti-vaccination movement, which there is some overlap, is my understanding, between these two communities, like some communities who... Um, you know, use corporal punishment and then some anti-vaxxers. Like, it's very clear um, that the scientific evidence is that that's not uh, good uh, for your child um, or for the society. Um, And yet, you know, that at a certain point, I think that the presumption that parents are always acting the best interest of the child has to go away when they're repeatedly, or at least has to be questioned when they're repeatedly doing things that their doctor, their kids' doctors and so on, are telling them are... Uh, harmful. Now, I think this is really delicate as a parent myself. Um, you know, <laughs> don't just want, I'm not saying we should just let experts decide everything. There's a huge realm of uh, normal parenting, normal in quotes, right? Like, so doctors disagree. And also parents definitely have the right to question everything their doctor says, right? If the doctors say you have to breastfeed or whatever, of course, I don't think that's what we should be imposing. But the corporal punishment evidence is so clear. And now we have so many, basically all our peer countries outline it that I do think that's a place where that assumption just has to break down. It's just not um, viable to say that a parent, someone who's repeatedly physically punishing their child uh, is acting in their best interest when there's so much contrary evidence. Now, let me say also, though, we do have to provide supports. The U.S. is particularly bad at, you know, again, sort of it's low, in a loan category of not supporting families. We've seen that particularly become stark in the COVID environment, right? So many people don't have access to paid leave. People don't have access to affordable childcare. They don't have access to uh, appropriate medical care information. So I don't think we can just say, oh, this is wrong and stigmatize parents without offering them resources like access to information about appropriate discipline and so on. So it definitely can't be just a void. 
It has to be, you know, taking away this tool, which is not a good tool, right, which is corporal punishment, and then putting in place other supports uh, for parents, because it is really challenging, and particularly for single parents or parents of kids with disabilities or teenagers even, um, right, it's really challenging. And so it's understandable why parents resort to this, um, but uh, it is not in the child's best interest, definitely. Yeah, and you bring up COVID-19 and this pandemic, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time recently thinking about all of the processes that really must be kind of crumbling at this point in terms of the child abuse and neglect system and, you know, um, referrals and home visits and, uh, you know, bringing petitions to court. Um, I I just, my mind kind of goes into a, a frightening place when I start to think about what is happening nationwide in terms of our systems um, and protecting children. What what concerns do you have um, brought forth by this pandemic? Yeah, well, I'm actually working on sort of an op-ed with some other people about this, because I think on the one hand, um, just like with the criminal system and with, you know, the states that have not, including New York, unfortunately, that have released um, uh, people, more people from jail or are jailing fewer people to contain the epidemic, we've seen that actually that's totally viable to do. Like we definitely incarcerate too many people and this is a way for us to see we don't need to do that. Um, so I do also think there are too many families, mostly low income families that get swept into the child welfare system for pretty minor stuff. Um, like, you know, leaving an older kid alone because they don't have childcare. I mean, older, like nine or 10, um, which, you know, some parents get involved in that now. I mean, well, I used to babysit when I was 10, but like the times have definitely, you know, changed. Um, so I think on the one hand, it's actually really good um, that there's less intervention into families um, because I think there's too much intervention into certain types of families, you know, uh, from schools and, and other people calling them in. You know, there's been cases of schools calling cases in for kids who are picked up 10 minutes late and things like that. That is really not abuse or neglect. It's a parent who doesn't have, you know, as many resources. Um, But then I do think there's, you know, a group, um, uh, again, and it comes down to a lack of resources, there's a group, you know, families that are particularly, that are already already stressed. And then under this, you know, whether it's because of like a lack of employment or because they are an essential worker that, you know, has to go and expose themselves to like health dangers, like as a bus driver or, you know, working in a grocery store. I do think there's families with the kids home from school that will be particularly stressed, like not have appropriate resources um, and where bad things can happen. Now, there's been no that I could find like evidence that there's necessarily an up, uptick in, you know, child fatalities or anything. Um, I know reports are way down because, you know, schools are closed. Um, but I do think it, again, just reveals like the lack of resources or supports that we put in place for families. Cause like, why wouldn't we have, you know, food deliveries or stuff? I know some communities are doing that. Um, and that's great. And in New York, for instance, the city, they're providing childcare for, um, essential workers, I mean, also people who work in grocery store stuff, which, you know, we should be doing anyway as a country, like people who can't afford private childcare uh, when school's out. Um, But I think, yeah, I think there is definitely a concern to me, but it's really not about individual parents. It's about, again, our larger system that just doesn't um, support families. Um, And so then it kind of comes out like individual parents snap uh, and cause harm. Uh, But I do think it's a bigger systemic problem. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm hoping that comes out of this pandemic is this idea that we move our focus in terms of funding and services and resources 
to a proactive model instead of a reactive model. Uh, would you agree that that would be um, a good change? Yeah, definitely. I'm just writing that down. That's great. I think we're definitely <laughs> much better because there's, again, a lot of research that most kids, for instance, in foster care, which is like over 400,000 kids uh, nationwide, even though, and that's way down from, I think that's about half of what the high was in the 90s. Um, but the, that many kids away from their parents that the vast majority of those would have been better off just if they yes. stayed home, even though this homes, the parents did lack resources, but we spend so much money on reacting and then reacting in a really extreme way, probably overreacting. And as opposed to providing some supports for those families in the first place that would never even necessitate uh, any kind of, you know, removal from the home or anything. Absolutely. I think that would be such a great change. Again, I'm a little <laughs> cynical, about the political environment, but we can all, we can only hope. There's been definitely discussion of that, I know, in both the family and criminal law contexts, and I think that would be really wonderful to see some policymakers get that, hey, this is actually, because the other thing is it's a more cost-effective, you know, I care about, like, the human part of it, but even for those people who might, it's much more about the bottom line, you know, we spend a huge amount of money on the child welfare system and foster care, whereas we could provide supports to those families at the front end, like more proactive, like you said, and that would end up being much better uh, and less costly. Absolutely. And one, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but um, (laughs) (laughs) one other thing I did want to talk about is, and and we briefly mentioned it a few minutes ago, is this idea of shaming. Um, You cite an example in your chapter of a mother who um, I think came to beat her children while they were at school Um, And you discuss other examples of internet shaming. I know recently I saw on Twitter, there was a video where, and I don't know why the father was doing this, but basically he was destroying his children's television and gaming systems and controllers with a baseball bat. Um, and, And so can you talk just a little bit about kind of this new area of internet shaming and and what type of damage that can have on children. That's so interesting. I didn't see that example, but yeah, when I was um, writing this chapter, I saw there some YouTube examples of shaming and it was really, I mean, it was really hard to watch. It was mostly sort of older kids, like nine, 10 through teenagers that the parents did that, I guess, kids who would care about, you know, social media more, but um, and often they would be using, the parents would be using like, gendered or, you know, um, like racist slurs themselves about their own children. Um, and it was, yeah, it seems like, again, I can only assume like desperation on the parents' part, but also just like really, really, um, bound to have, we don't have tons of research on it, but we do know that emotional abuse, like I said earlier, can be more harmful, uh, is often more harmful than, uh, physical abuse, um, in the long run. And I can only imagine once that gets put on like social media, um, you know, for a teenager to have their peers hearing their, you know, mother call them like a slut or whatever, you know, worse term just seems like really, really harmful. And like, how can that, it seems like the parent-child bond, like that seems like a hard thing to recover from. So I think it's a very bad trend. Um, and I don't know, um, I can't even imagine why parents do it except again, maybe like desperation, but also kind of like the sense of the audience, which is, you know, a downside of social media and certainly not something like, I think that's an area where there should be more privacy and that kids should have the right not to have, you know, their stuff all over social media, no matter what their parent thinks. Um, Yeah. So that's a very disturbing development to me. 
So before we go, um, are you working on anything now? Yeah, so I'm working on a couple of things. The one I guess sort of more relevant to this is about the child welfare system and thinking of alternatives, kind of like going back to what you said about proactive versus reactive, um, thinking even of abolition, which is a concept that's gained traction uh, among criminal law, really activists originally, um, and now more scholars like to that we have to replace this very broken, you know, racialized system with something better because it's not keeping us safe. I think the same thing is true of the child welfare system, which has a lot of similarities to the criminal system, that it's not keeping children safe. It's not helping families. It's incredibly costly, both for, you know, people and in uh, fiscal terms. And then we need to find a better way to protect children, which I definitely agree we should as a society. Um, but, and there's always going to need to be, a, a, I think a very small number of children who might need to be with their families much smaller than we have now, but the vast majority of the system really could be replaced with something more proactive. So that's what I'm working on now, still kind of early stages, but thinking of like, how could we do this like really differently fundamentally? Well, that sounds great. I look forward to reading more from you in the future and thank you so much for coming onto the program. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to Off Our Next.